Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. In a very banal way, I would like to start with the name of our office, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture. It is a very important fact that this is an office which did not originate from a building, uh, but it actually originated from a book. A book in 1978, written by Rem Kohlhaas, published at a date when I was 14 years old. And, and I think, in relation to freedom, this immediately constitutes a, a kind of an important fact. It means that the office was developed in the space of writing, which I guess invariably is the space of thinking, which always uh, has a degree of freedom, no matter what kind of messy circumstances you get involved in. And, and it's a freedom, of course, we relish uh, in parallel to the buildings we do. I think also the interesting thing is, and I'm partially speaking for myself here, but I know it goes to a large extent for others too, is the fact that your office is based on a book which is essentially not written by me or anybody else, but by another person, also paradoxically, as it may sound, constitutes a degree of freedom, because in a strange way, because it isn't a style, uh, an architectural style, but, you know, a body of thought, it is also a body of thought that can be inhabited by others and expanded by others. It is something that you can become part of, even if as an architect, stylistically, you may want to do different things. So in that sense, it's a source of cohesion, but always a source of freedom. This is an image from the book. Uh, It's actually an earlier project, which has made its way into the book as its fictional Conclusion. It's the city of the captive uh, globe. And I think the book is interesting precisely for that reason in the sense that I think it's the first book of the 20th century that is actually realistic about the value or the relevance of architecture. What you see here is in a way a series of buildings which in a way are all in their own way part of totalizing architectural theories which all assume that once they were designed, everything after them will be designed like them. They all claim a validity well beyond their own borders. And in a way, here in the context of the Manhattan grid, they are all reduced to kind of reproductions of the worlds in their own right, with a strong ideology, but nevertheless an ideology that is confined to the walls of the buildings. And of course, a drawing like this, in a way, heralds a truly agnostic Asian architecture, partially as a reaction to a lot of stuff that has happened since. It's an important uh, image that will become clear later. Of course, we meanwhile do the buildings uh, that were once described in the book. Another freedom of globalization is the fact that you can do buildings outside their place of origin. So this is not New York, but this is in Rotterdam, a building appropriately called the Rotterdam. I'd like to talk about freedom in a more general sense. Much has been talked about freedom. Ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we assume that for the first time we live in a world that is fully Free And that freedom has been theorized abundantly by people like Fukuyama. And that freedom has been made absolute as an ideology, like in a way, uh, Fukuyama's end of history. The assumption that Western liberal democracy would be the one and only remaining system in the world, a kind of end of ideologies and, and a collective embrace of economic values. If this was the world before 1991 a world of parallel systems, Western, communist, and non-aligned, then this was the presumed world after 1991. Uh, Simply a spreading of Western uh, liberal democracy as the only system in the whole world. In a way, uh, it was assumed that if you take the main currencies of the world, already at that moment, people say yes, before it was ever openly formulated as a proposition... I guess you could say that our office in parts, and particularly the expansion of our office to its current size, is also a product of that thinking. Before 1991, we had one office in New York. After 1991, uh, we gradually grew to six offices in the whole world. Also, I guess, in part, assuming that we would encounter similar conditions uh, elsewhere and that we can simply extend the domain in which we uh, operate. We meanwhile, I think, do some hundred concurrent projects in more than 50 countries, but that's seemingly uh, relatively uninteresting corporate speak. What is a more interesting fact is that that expansion is in a way mirrored in the composition uh, of our office, where we have over 45 nationalities on a staff of 
300, uh, where uh, even in the Netherlands or in Hong Kong or wherever we are, the locals are a minority. And in fact, there is no uh, minority. The composition of our office anywhere is a sort of united colors of uh, whatever, but it isn't that multiculturalism in itself that is interesting. What is interesting is that that multiculturalism is in a way at the root of the creative formula of our office, which I guess you can at best describe as a permanent cultural clash in which there are very few a priori. I mean, there is no majority, uh, therefore it's an ecology of minorities with a huge uh, amount of interrogation of each and every proposition, uh, with a huge amount of doubt. I think this is a design session on CCTV. The man you see here is the founder of our office who looks overcome by the most acute state of doubt, uh, uh, I, I guess, forever. But uh, it's a long, often tiresome, wrought process with occasionally uh, a, a result. Um, and what is interesting as well is that at the time, uh, the fact that one assumed homogenous conditions is also evident from the choices that one made. Uh, our largest building today is CCTV that came into the office as part of a competition in 2002. At the same time as uh, we were invited to work on the reconstruction of ground zero. Uh, we didn't opt for this because we suspected it would become a talk show of decades. Uh, China had the Olympics, was uh, fresh, and anyway, we opted, opted to work in China. Clearly not without risk. Clearly that meant embedding ourselves in, well, a political system as, again, we all know it. Clearly there would be differences, but how different were these differences at the time? Uh, there is, uh, in an interesting way, objects in your rearview mirror are closer than they appear. Uh, you know, the, the degree of dictatorship in China can be exaggerated. The degree of democracy in other parts of the world can be exaggerated in parallel. So there is, at, at the time, it looked like a wonderful uh, symmetry. Um, I'd like to, in a way, uh, elaborate uh, on, on that proposition. Uh, Fifteen years before, in front of the Berlin Wall, Reagan uh, held a speech as a visitor to Germany with the famous line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And much to everyone's surprise, and I think most of all Ronald Reagan's surprise, Gorbachev actually did tear down uh, that wall, and in a way the world as we know it today began. Um, since uh, the West has won this battle, since conservative ideologists of the West can largely claim that battle, there has been a huge amount of forgetting uh, of, of the other side, which I think is increasingly biting the world in the back. This is how they saw it from the other side. This is the year before. It's a celebration in former East Germany. Uh, for who speaks German, it says here, 25 years of anti-fascist protection war. So I guess it's a matter of opinion uh, in, in parts. And we think that this is over. But actually, is it over? It's a beautiful Faulkner quote. Uh, the past is never dead. In fact, it isn't even past. And interestingly enough, so if the, it's in the 90s and the early zeros, we thought this would be the world in which we operate. We currently find the same amount of projects actually in this world, a world that isn't united in an embrace of Western liberal democracy uh, and a world that increasingly looks less likely like it's going to be divided. I'll give a very quick uh, explanation. Blue is democracy. There you have election. Uh, red is non-democracy. There you don't have election. And yellow is pseudo-democracy. There you have elections, but you know the outcome in advance. An increasingly successful political system. And I'm saying this without any value judgment. I don't want to, in a way, uh, idealize the American or the European democracy. It's simply the different status and predictability of elections that's at play here. But a pseudo-democracy gives a very interesting propositions of dictatorships to dictatorships that no longer want to appear like dictatorships, hence can seem democratic without really becoming it. But it also uh, clearly forms a luring proposition to establish democracies to, in, to decline in lesser form of democracies with having the appropriate excuse. So it's, it's, 
it's a tricky, tricky uh, system. Um, so it basically means that with our expansion of the 90s, we have found ourselves in three distinctly different uh, conditions. And I'd like to show a project, in a way, in each of these uh, conditions. This, the first one is in the glorious Republic of Kazakhstan. Uh, a former Soviet republic with all the overhauls uh, of the former Soviet a Union, bad, but also good, large uh, social housing, prefabricated social uh, housing projects, which in parts actually still form an inspiration uh, to our architecture. Uh, but of course, uh, more recently, they have discovered the reaches of oil. This is in the center uh, of Almaty. It's a nightclub, appropriately called Petroleum. Uh, and the image kind of speaks for itself. It's very clear which part of Western culture these countries encounter first. Of course, as with any country that becomes rich, they develop a spontaneous passion for very good architecture. I don't know who this is. Uh, um, and, uh, of course, knowing that we wouldn't be we if we wouldn't spontaneously develop a passion for the architecture they had just left behind. Uh, an early constructivist uh, diagram, which in a way formed uh, the inspiration of uh, stuff that we did. We were asked to design a science and technology campus, of course, owned by one of the major oil corporations in there. And, and this was our proposition, a, a science city in the middle of the snow near the mountains near Almaty, the Chinese border runs behind, and this is what we did. We were happy, but uh, the whole proposition encountered rather mixed feelings. These were our clients. This was uh, the communication with our clients. This is an excerpt from the communication with one of our project uh, leaders. Tomorrow, we need to present the options to our bosses. We cannot just say, oh, my told us it's better. We need to prove it with arguments. I personally don't want to stand for it. It's nice to have after discussion. Uh, sort of some mild resistance uh, here. Time, that generally means no, but as an architect, uh, the next email. Richard, project leader, I've got marked copies which you gave me proving the evidence of agreement. It is strange to see your resistance. I will report the issue to Yermak. <laughs> this is sort of the one of the clock in the morning, knock on the door. Then uh, invariably calls compliance. So anyway, um, the contractor was already in place. There would be no tender. The contractor had excellent credentials. He had built the President Palace of uh, Nazarbayev, and he had already been chosen actually before we arrived. Uh, the contractor was the Mabatex uh, group, actually run by a person uh, which on closer inspection we found was a fugitive for the Yugoslavia Tribunal. Uh, a fugitive from the former Yugoslavia wanted for arms smuggling, uh, illegal arms smuggling, and made a fortune and restarted uh, all over again. All of this didn't end well. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but all I know is that after a while, we got a request to submit our drawings and, and another polite request to encounter early payment, provided we promised we wouldn't show up at the presentation. Uh, so that was that. That is, in a way, a short-lived adventure in, in a region where I say we probably wouldn't return, but nothing is as categorical uh, uh, as that. We got another chance uh, in Russia itself, the home of the science city, or the so-called uh, Naukograd. In 2009, uh, the Kremlin, together with a rich uh, uh, oligarch, Viktor Fechterberg, launched a plan for a state-induced uh, Silicon Valley. It's a bit of a contradiction uh, in terms. Nevertheless, that was the case here. Uh, a Silicon Valley by imposition uh, of the Kremlin, uh, a competition, which we did, where similar uh, ideas, like in the previous master plan, uh, were actually introduced in a more uh, refined way. Uh, but for a long time, it actually looked like our chances were uh, excellent uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, where we, in a way, elaborated the center uh, of the whole thing, programmed it, presented it. Um, actually, we managed to get to the very uh, top uh, of the leadership, presented it to the Russian president. But then something mysterious happened. Uh, a not very well-known French uh, state firm... Uh, 
basically the odds turned and their chances of winning dramatically increased, uh, allegedly as collateral for a deal. This was in the Russian-French uh, friendship year uh, and allegedly as collateral for a deal about the Moscow-St. Peter, uh, Petersburg Highway, uh, which was not going to be built with a French contractor where they majorly lost that through some kind of deal, uh, essentially a winner uh, uh, was uh, introduced, which was French, which was announced in, in Paris. So it's a project, I think, currently on the whole on hold because, as you know, the leadership uh, uh, of Russia changed. So it's, it's in a way, are we happy or sad? Uh, I don't know. It's definitely not a reason never to work in Russia again. So not everything is what it seems. Um, anyway, uh, that's that. Then... Another part of the world. It is a painful irony or a painful, difficult situation. Uh, as an architect, you tend to build where there's a lot of building going on. Now, the vast majority of the building in the world is going on in places where cities grow fast. And where cities grow fast is mostly in the red and yellow, which almost by definition uh, you know, forges an encounter with political systems that most of us did not grow up in, but with, in, with which we somehow have to come uh, to terms. We've done a lot of work. Well, we haven't done a lot of work, but we've spent a lot of time in, in, in Dubai. Uh, just to, to give a little background, this was Dubai in 1990. This is that same city, that same road here, as you see in the previous picture, currently looks like this. That means that nothing in this picture is older than 25 years. That means, whatever you think of this, that in less than 25 years, a pretty vibrant, globally competing metropolis has almost been built from scratch. Uh, of course, architecture in a place like that gets uh, ever more uh, extravagant. Every building fair is the announcement of the next Dubai. Uh, and of course, very interestingly, uh, a kind of bastard architecture is emerging. This is Santiago Calatrava, uh, with this turning torso in Malmo. This is the Dubai uh, equivalent uh, of it. Probably cheaper, probably faster, probably with less hassle, uh, and anyway, and not that different. And anyway, this is the sum total of those types of architecture. This is a collage we made after visiting one of the cityscape uh, real exchange <laughs> fairs. This is basically the masterpieces by all the people nobody's ever heard of who are massively active in those regions. Now, if you look at this image, these are the masterpieces by people everyone has heard of. And, of course, it begs the question, is there really such a difference? And if there is a difference, is the difference worth the hassle? Uh, it's very interesting if you look at this picture, you know, where every building tries to be an icon for that very reason nothing uh, is an icon. It's an interesting full circle that, in a way, the condition that I showed earlier in delirious New York kind of manifests itself uh, on steroids uh, in the context of Dubai. Uh, this is uh, ours, but you actually have to circle it with a red line. Uh, to be able to notice it. And this building was a huge uh, effort. And, of course, when we got involved, we got involved in the context of the crisis uh, in Dubai, which slowly meant that all of this stuff uh, was put on hold. Um, at the time, uh, we thought that, in a way, the crisis, which seemed to spell the end of the iconic, or at least seemed to be an introduction to a different uh, kind of architecture, could in a way lead to uh, a rebirth. So this was our discovery uh, in the context of Dubai. Uh, a building, uh, a very interesting formalist uh, adventure. Uh, massive presence from one side, massive slenderness from another, only to reveal massive presence from the other. That's the degree uh, of, of formal extravagance that, that we permitted here. But nevertheless, a building that... Uh, in its context, there was a facade with kind of pockets of resistance, I guess, against the totally boring. 
but uh, nevertheless, a building that in its context, uh, despite its simplicity, uh, despite its relatively boring appearance, could stand out. Because as said, when everything is an icon, the only building that stands out is the one that foregoes any attempt at trying to be uh, an icon. So when we had discovered this, we were very happy. Uh, we sort of spontaneously started on a branding campaign for Dubai. This is a stamp with our building. This is an advertisement in a Korean newspaper where the building poses as a kind of new form of script. Uh, and uh, largely a, a kind of a new uh, direction, also a new direction in our office with a renewed invention of the charm of the 90-degree angle, etc., etc., and, and in a way a new fetish uh, of the generic. Now, we didn't win uh, this award. Uh, I don't think anything is being built uh, today, but it was a very important milestone uh, in the production uh, of our office. This is 2006, I believe. Uh, then there was a long time nothing, a long time very little in the Middle East, until I encountered uh, our building somewhere else uh, in the middle of Beirut. And this leads to another kind of insight. This is the holiday in Beirut in Lebanon, a building that was ravaged during the Lebanese uh, Civil War, a building that is an icon in the city, because, largely because of its story, where every room was fought over uh, between the Falangist and the Palestinian Liberation Army, a Palestinian fighter in the building in front of a poster of uh, Nasser, and a building that just stands there. I think there have been countless attempts to redevelop the building, to give it a new purpose. For some reason, nothing has worked, and it just stands there in the middle of the city like an enormous icon, like a testimony to a past that seems over, but of course is never uh, really over. And while it contains about 100,000 square meters, other buildings of a similar size are going up there uh, as well. This is across the road uh, from that building, uh, Herzog and Demeron. So this is modern and this is modern. But nevertheless, there is a strange difference between the two, and, and there's a strange difference between modernism, I think, in the 21st century and in the 20th century, that even though stylistically there are many, many similarities, even though some of the verbal ideology that comes with these buildings is sometimes suspiciously like the 20th century. Actually, the system in which that architecture functions is completely different. Uh, the Beirut terraces, a world-class uh, icon in the Middle East, etc., etc. But also, uh, more than architecture, it is primarily real estate. It's a real estate venture, and buildings like it drive up massively the price uh, in the center of Beirut, where uh, largely the center is, is becoming unaffordable uh, for a lot of regular uh, Lebanese, uh, somehow an exacerbated version of, of a development that's happening inside London uh, as well. But of course, in the context of a hugely explosive uh, religious and ethnic mix, you can really, really wonder whether gentrification uh, is, the, is a true and honest answer to some of the problems. Uh, the terraces, uh, of course, part of an internationally prolific style, a similar kind of thing, of Herzog and Demeron in New York, uh, another building in Beijing, but very much part of an international style that now engulfs the major capitals of the cities. And because of what it's part of, because of what it helps doing, it is, of course, only a matter of time before it encounters resistance. And it doesn't just encounter a marginal resistance, it encounters a resistance uh, from the very top, from people we pursue as non-democratic, from people we uh, perceive as, you know, totalitarian. Here, a remarkably progressive statement. It could have been made by Corbyn, was slightly more eloquent, but... Um, architects should be like the sunshine from the blue sky and the breeze in spring that will inspire mind, warm hearts, cultivate taste, and clean up undesirable work styles. So... <laughs> The venom is in the last syllables, I guess. But I read this, uh, and of course, uh, many people, and in the press, this, this quote actually appeared with our CCTV building, so everybody assumed he meant us. But I can assure you that's not the case. He meant everybody else. 
But reading it, uh, of course, there's an interesting echo here, and, and I couldn't figure out until I read Khrushchev again. Uh, 1954, the famous speech where he cleaned up Stalinist uh, architecture, all this architectural and artistic decorate. No comrades, this is architectural perversion that leads to the spoiling of materials and unnecessary expenditure of resources. It's an interesting thing because this used to be an argument against Stalinist architecture. In China, it is largely an argument against modern architecture, which somehow, in a strange way, has come full cycle and apparently triggers some of the same feeling that the kind of ornamented Stalinist architecture triggers. So one wonders, this is constructivism in the 20th century, the Workers' Club 1928 by Golosov. This is Elishitsky in the 20th century. This is Elishitsky in Rotterdam, recently completed. This is Le Corbusier in America. White. This is uh, Rietveld Schroederhuis. Uh, this is its equivalent uh, in the United States, uh, House 6. And of course, don't want to spare ourselves, this is the Barcelona Pavilion, and this is the Groninger bus stop. <laughs> uh, with a seriously reduced, I mean, you can see the relevance of budget constraints in, the, in recent times, with a serious reduction of the marble. Anyway, this is the manifesto of modern architecture, the Maison Domino, the Plum Libre. Meanwhile, this stands for, at the time, for basically the possibilities of reinforced concrete, uh, economic use of materials, freedom of planning, in a way, all the ideals that were to herald an enlightened uh, period as was the 20th century. This is that whole thing full cycle. This is a realized version of the Plan Domino, which is actually in Greece, where uh, buildings are deliberately uh, not finished because it gives very interesting uh, tax breaks. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. What, in a way, the, the somewhat unfair comparison between these two images meant to illustrate is that the same architecture, which functioned one way in the context of a particular society and ideology, can actually aid and abet purposes which are completely antithetical to its initial ideology. But nevertheless, architects in this day and age which produce this in a very serious manner still think they are promoting uh, an old ideology when actually, actually unwittingly they've become completely complicit into agendas uh, they either don't know or would never endorse if they knew them, or they know them and they endorse them, but, I mean, any of the three combinations isn't very flattering. Um, if this was vernacular uh, individual architecture in 1914, where, in a way, uh, the different character of nations was expressed through architecture uh, in a different way, uh, this is the character of that nation actually expressed uh, in this uh, day and age, a kind of a, 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 a process of homogenization uh, where largely initial building styles have been traded in for something else without the promise that those styles once had. And it is very, very interesting that in a way this transition is mirrored by another very, very similar transition in the political sphere. If this were politics and events in politics at one point, uh, then, then this is the current state of politics, where there is no difference because simply every nation, dictatorial or democratic, is trying to get the Olympic uh, Games uh, as the sum total of, uh, of politics. So I want to go back. We assumed the world would look like this after 1991, and in fact we found the world looking like this. And it's, it's doubtful if it's going to change in a hurry. Because one of the assumptions was that by becoming democratic, you would become rich. That in a way, the blessings of capitalism and the blessings of democracy were part of the same tandem. It is actually increasingly becoming clear that that is not the case. It's specifically the countries which officially still call themselves communist in this day and age, that seem to be better at the capitalist game than its original inventors, uh, the liberal democracies of the West. Let's look at this. This is uh, a, an overview of the sovereign wealth funds of nations. Uh, it's, it's a lot of examples. It's the top uh, ten largest sovereign wealth funds. If you add it all up, uh, 
you clearly see that in terms of playing the money game, uh, the success is kind of inversely proportional to the degree of democracy, which is worrying, but which is a very serious political reality that I think uh, every politician uh, ought to reckon uh, with. Uh, I want to go back to Dubai. Essentially, Dubai by the beginning of the century. Uh, oil uh, struck. The country was modernized aggressively in physical terms, even though its ruling system was not modernized. It's the same families that have been presiding over the country for more than a century, which actually currently preside over modernism, which is another very curious contradiction. It had a period of kind of relative enlightenment with Western and mostly actually Asian avant-garde, like Tanga, uh, building uh, in the Middle East. And it had very interestingly planning. This is a very interesting thing. This is the very first urban plan for Dubai, uh, which prepares for the growth. It's, it's made more or less at the time of the first image with the empty road uh, that I showed. It's made by Parsons. It was meant to last 20 years. Then, of course, Dubai grew faster than its planning could keep up with. Ever more frantic planners rolled up sleeves, frantic sketches... Uh, But anyway, somewhere in 2003, halfway through the term of the first structure master plan for the Emirate, actually a new plan uh, had to be drawn. And that plan largely more or less traced things which had happened anyway, trying to retroactively make them look deliberate. But even before this plan could be finished, it had already again been overtaken uh, by reality, at which point... Uh, you know, the whole notion of planning becomes rather shaky. I think it's a mistake to regard a place like Dubai as a city that can be planned. This is, in a way, its its composition. A series of theme parks, a series of individual snippers uh, of urban development, which, in a way, each uh, compete for the same market of expat uh, residents, and in a very interesting uh, way, also announcing the next phase of the agnostic. Because if this was the image from Delirious New York, where architecture was agnostic, Dubai, uh, and where urbanism was the only thing, the urban grid, the only thing that kept these things together, Dubai introduces the next phase, where actually the urban plan has become part of the agnostic. The city and city ideology has become as exchangeable as the building. So as a carrier for diversity, also the notion of the urban uh, begins to break down. Uh, There's no accurate study of Dubai's current development, uh, not because we are incapable of cancer, but because the time such a study materialized on paper would no longer be valid, as the achievement pace would have exceeded it by falls. This is clearly the case, a vision of of the ruler, which means that the only form of planning imaginable for a situation of mutually competing haphazard uh, development would be a form of air traffic control, where real-time you would monitor all the developments that happen, in a way trying to ensure uh, that none of them would conflict uh, with each other, either a form of air traffic control or a form of simulating military maneuvers, as, as, as the army does with, with battleships, in this case large urban developments, which sort of have to be kept at bay from each other so they don't have uh, disastrous uh, encounters. How is that done and and why is that done? I mean, in many ways you could say that this is done because Dubai is not a state. Dubai is something between a corporation and a state. Dubai has a single ruler. Now, contrary to what many may think, uh, and and this is certainly not uh, a moral condemnation of any sorts. This man is not elected. Nevertheless, if there were elections, he would win by a 90% majority without a single uh, case of fraud in the whole election. That is sure, because, I mean, and there are people in the West who emphasize now the importance of competence uh, for rulers, (laughs) mainly in America, but, I mean, this man... uh, runs uh, a city-state, which is more or less small enough to be run in a particular way. Uh, it's not to say that it doesn't have institutions. It's not to say that it doesn't have a co- government structure. In fact, the government structure looks 
suspiciously uh, like that of the Netherlands uh, uh, or Britain, but there is a twist. Many of the functions inside the public office, inside this governor uh, structure, are occupied by certain people. But those same people actually have the private sector. And where in our political ethos, it's of course uh, a conditio sine qua non that you have to relinquish uh, your private business interests for you to assume public office. There's the other way around. Business interests are a prerequisite to assume uh, public office, which means that the whole place is essentially run very successfully on the basis of a conflict of interest. And conflict of interest is everything we try to avoid there. It's the very mechanism that keeps the whole system uh, going. Uh, an example, the chairman of the executive council is the chairman of Dubai Holdings, very important property developer. Uh, chairman of the Department of Economic Development, chairman of the largest property developer. Uh, the port, uh, the guy who runs the port is the same guy that runs Nakhil. It's essentially the same people uh, running the thing on both ends of the spectrum, public and private. So this is the way it works. This is, in a way, this is the real estate sector, for instance. What from the periphery seems a free market landscape with a huge amount of relatively small competing uh, companies is actually something else because 51% of each of these companies is owned by a big holding as is these, as is these. There are three big holdings. And, of course, the ruling family, again, has a 51% stake in each of the holdings, uh, where, de facto, you have something that looks like free enterprise, looks suspiciously uh, like what we encounter everywhere, but that, on closer inspection, is a completely controlled, single-owned, uh, large entity. So hey, they have the benefit of appearing small when they need to be and acting big, when they need to as well. So to some extent, uh, you know, to take the analogy a little bit further, the whole development of this emirate is, is, is masterminded from a metaphorical center, from a metaphorical, this is Dr. Strangelove uh, with Dubai uh, in the background, by the way. Uh, but that is the basis of its success. And it is very interesting that in a way, something that I describe here and probably would condemn every single aspect uh, of it is, is nevertheless a system that seems to perform very, very well. I mean, even seems to perform well in certain social uh, aspects. Anyway, there's an interesting crossover here too. I mean, this metaphorical control room, which we once drew in an attempt to describe the principle at work, it actually exists. And it doesn't exist in Dubai. It exists somewhere else. This is a digital town Hall, as they call it, in Rio de Janeiro, uh, built by IBM, Centro de Operações of the Province of Rio, where in an analogy with NASA, the city is planned, monitored, controlled, and, and governed. The analogy with NASA goes so far that employees are, wear, are forced to wear strange kind of jumpsuits uh, while looking at the city. Of course, employees wearing a jumpsuits equates the city to outer space, unwittingly, but I don't know to what extent one is aware of that. And they look at Rio. And when they look at Rio, they see that Rio has favelas. They see that Rio is poor. As a matter of fact, and they look at that from behind a computer screen. The question, of course, is what changes? Uh, what changes when you can look at the obvious from behind a computer screen, you can quantify it 80 digits behind the comma. I mean, what does big data really politically uh, change? And, and it's a major question. To what extent monitor, monitoring equals governance? Uh, IBM is, uh, is very, very clear about that. I mean, for them, the smart city is on its way in part and parcel to replace uh, government. I'd like to talk about a number of these initiatives. IBM has launched something which they called Smarter Cities. I guess that means that all our cities, as urban planners, were dumb. Uh, but we, we take no offense, because also IBM isn't the only one. There is a million and one companies 
tech companies, digital companies, which now involve themselves uh, with the city. Anything from Cisco, IBM, Philips, uh, Siemens, etc., etc. Is, and we used to write manifestos about the city. Now, in this day and age, they write manifestos, and they write in a kind of beautiful marketing speak, very, very confident manifestos. Let's look at the three, the three of the largest: Siemens, Cisco, and IBM, and let's look at their claims in their manifestos. This is uh, Cisco. Uh, smart city development is a question of when, not if, a question of how, not what, why, because we live in a world experience, economic turmoil, climate change, aging populations, and rapid urbanization. Another one, IBM. Climate change, rising energy prices. Uh, very big uh, claims. Siemens here, urbanization, population growth, climate change, dwindling uh, resources, and then set off against the potential of IT and urban infrastructure. So we did a little exercise. We, in a way, merged these three manifestos into one and looked at all the things they could cumulatively solve, which is anything from climate change, dwindling, re-aging population, rising energy, economic turmoil, population growth. That is a whole lot of things. I mean, and that is an, that is an admirable proposition, and, and it, it, to some extent it reeks of some of the grandiose claims from the age of Corbusier, or from earlier generations of architects which thought they had found the panacea uh, for all the world's problems, and, and you know, a century later we know better. But nevertheless, this is a younger generation of people who look at the city, and this is what they claim to solve. Incidentally, they evoke the apocalypse only to offer redemption, and in doing that, they invoke a very old uh, technique. They largely invoke the technique uh, of the Bible. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You just replace the Lord by IBM. You've got more or less the same marketing brochure. But it goes on, and, it, and it's serious business. Uh, the smart city claims to deal with traffic, energy, utilities, healthcare, airports, social services, rail, public safety, education, etc. Smart water, public services... Uh, Siemens, again, public administration, financing, security. And the interesting thing is, if you add it all up, what used to be public tasks, what used to be tasks of elected governments, what used to be tasks executed by people we voted for, apparently now are cumulatively taken over by a collection of smart city entrepreneurs. So to say that the erosion of the public sector and the erosion of public accountability is something that happens only outside the West is a huge mistake. I, uh, there's a video by IBM, was filmed in St. Louis, and it's the police, it's St. Louis, and we know the St. Louis metropolitan area from a different type of police action. Ferguson is just next door. Uh, and, of course, there, uh, excuse me, we need answers for Michael Brown Jr., the killing of an unarmed uh, teenager, a policeman. So it certainly wasn't a form of stopping it before it happens, but <laughs> with a slightly different twist. This is the police. This is, I think, what smart police amounts to. That smart technology is not in a desktop of some form of remote monitoring, but is very real uh, and present in the gear of a police that actually increasingly looks... Uh, uh, like an, uh, an army. Ferguson, as I said, is in the St. Louis area. Surprise, surprise, the whole judicial state uh, of St. Louis uh, isn't very, very good. It's, in fact, dire. Uh, but this is a challenge that IBM uh, has risen to, uh, in a way, to combat special partnership with the St. Louis metropolitan area uh, to combat crime. And as their first uh, major act... Uh, they actually awarded St. Louis uh, an IBM award after they had partnered it, so they essentially awarded themselves an award. St. Louis is interesting. I mean, St. Louis is interesting also for architects because, I mean, I assume that most of you know uh, this image, the demolition of the Pruitt-Igo housing estate uh, in 1972, heralded by most critics, and one critic in particular, Charles Jenks, as the death uh, of modern architecture, which died uh, in, in Missouri, St. Louis, July 15, 1972, as a final coup de grace. It's, it's very interesting. Modern architecture died in St. Louis. There used to be this huge public housing estate. Now there is nothing. Also, the city around it has gone. But yes, public housing died. 
I mean, you in fact have to point at where it was if you go there uh, at present. But it's very interesting that nothing has come in its place. I mean, the city is empty. This estate is gone, but also the city around it uh, uh, has gone. And I think that begs the question, if really anything has filled the footsteps of these former ideologies. And we all know when overdoses of utopia is changed, but I think what you see here is rather the consequences of an underdose uh, of utopia, which doesn't look any more uplifting. Um, so this was proven. I go, 1968. This is gone, and of course, other critics, uh, Colin Rofer, kind of call out city, not only the death of modern architecture, but also the city of Hilbersheimer, Corbusier, etc. The whole CM effort essentially found its death when actually Pruvit Igo found its death. So that's the end of utopias like this. And interestingly, the same city that is the burying ground of the modern utopia now seems to be the birthplace of a new utopia in the form of smarter cities. But will they be any more successful? That is, of course, a major question. Uh, there's another interesting crossover here. I mean, IBM talks about smarter cities. There is somebody else who simply talks about the fact that cities are smarter by definition. This is Benjamin Barber, who has written a book, uh, If Mayors Ruled the World. Actually, his proposition is that uh, cities are run so much better than nation in the context of failing uh, nation states. Uh, it is cities who should rise to the challenge, often linked to smart city uh, initiatives because they could deal better with interdependence and simply could deal better, uh, better governors in the context of a globalized world. There's, of course, something to be said for this, uh, you know, because urbanization is on the rise gradually more cities, bigger cities, more and more people, uh, more than half of the world's population lives in cities. There are certain cities which are bigger than entire nations. Sao Paulo is bigger than Austria. Mexico City is bigger than Finland. Nevertheless, uh, they're not part of the United Nations uh, or anything. But there is a very interesting flip side to this as well. Because if cities, in a way, outgrow nations... Uh, in the world of globalization, corporations outgrow cities. And that is a very weird uh, jump of scale because, I mean, in terms of political authority, I guess the order we all assume is upside down from the actual size. And that means it's only a matter of time before that system starts to become very, very uh, frictional. Of the 10 largest economies in the world, 37 are corporations. Uh, we, we did a little test. Interestingly, this is a list of the largest countries. This is a list of the largest cities. This is a list of the largest corporations in terms of uh, turnout, in terms of money. Uh, and then we simply made a list which was only according to the turnover of money. So then the whole list starts to mix. It's very interesting. You see Walmart being bigger than Norway, BP being bigger than Greece, uh, Cisco being bigger than the whole of Lebanon, Ford being bigger than the whole of Morocco. And actually you could, I mean with a bit of imagination, you could actually read the current globalized world as a collection of you know, corporate territories. Um, and of course this has an interesting effect. This footlooseness and the size of corporations has an effect on their behavior where I can think that you know, corporate growth is probably inversely proportional to corporate loyalty to nations. This is an invented diagram, but I mean, I thank you. <laughs> I, I think everyone gets the point. To the point, but look, Amazon faces European tax avoidance investigation. The British don't want to sub, small sub Starbucks from dodging taxes. It won't work. And this one's priceless. Uh, Eric Schmidt from Google, the Defense Tech Shorts. It's called capitalism. <laughs> but let's analyze it like this. If before globalization, before Fukuyama you could presume a relative degree of corporations to the nation where they were founded or where their headquarters was. After 1991, such is not the case. There is a subtle shift in emphasis. But if we equate corporation to private and nation to the public sphere, the world is the world, a different picture starts to emerge. Because again, you can equate that to the economy and the political. So where there was some form of checks and balances between the economy and the political in this system, 
you know, as being condemned to each other. In the new system, uh, the political is more or less the ought one out. It is the one standing uh, aside, uh, this ménage à trois. And that's the current situation. And of course, if you make the letters bigger, world economy spells one word, and the political gets minute that the side effect of the escalation of scale of the economy without an appropriate escalation of scale of the political or at least the ambitions of the political runs the risk of in a way making the political oblivious which means that in the last instance the agnostic age uh, which started with agnostic architecture leads to an agnostic uh, political uh, situation with a relative interchangeability uh, of an a la carte situation and interchangeability of those ideologies into irrelevance. A last chapter. So, Fukuyama, uh, 1991. Uh, we're 25 years later than the book. We celebrated the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's, this wall fell. This wall, I think, will be constructed if the American elections go the wrong way. Um, but anyway, uh, without that, we see the fall of the Berlin Wall, but in a way the re-emergence of a whole load of walls, conflicts of interests in uh, the rest uh, of the world. The system of parallel systems which agree to disagree largely still exists in a different form. What do we do? I mean, we largely, as architects, get by. We learn from it. We try to accumulate wisdom. But I think we should be careful in, in endorsing certain things. I mean, I always shiver when I read stuff like this. I think it's Foster, so that's okay. China rather than England. In Beijing, they have built a much larger new terminal than Terminal 5, plus a new runway in less than five years. I mean, it's, it's heralding the efficiency of China over the supposed inefficiency of Britain. Here we go. Uh, this is a collection of interesting quotes. We're in a state of denial. While they, the Chinese, are making decisions in the spirit of the Victorians, they have the courage to try it. And I don't know who this is. What attracts me about China is that there is still a state. There is something that can take initiative on a scale of a nature that almost nobody that we know of today could ever afford or contemplate. Heidemann. The more centralized the power, the less compromises need to be made in architecture. The directions are clearer. Um, uh, democracy, obviously, is something we don't want to get rid of, but it does create chaos. Look at the author. Uh, it means the guy next door can do what he wants, and it creates a collision of thinking. In cities, that means people build whatever they want. I just recently learned that Frank Gehry's work is apparently highly contextual. Uh, I, I never knew. Some of the most amazing places were built because of dictators' architecture. It's always related to power and related to large interests, whether financial or political. And this one, I think, is priceless. I, I fully endorse it. I think the best thing to have is a benevolent dictator <laughs> who has taste. It is kind of interesting because there seems to be a consensus, I mean, and maybe more than a consensus just between Pritzker Prize winners, that the world indeed is venturing towards a homogenous condition. The only thing is that that condition isn't Western liberal democracy. I ultimately think it is something else. And I think the danger, maybe, that that something else is neither red nor blue, but maybe, in fact, all yellow, all pseudo-democracy. And the question, if that can still count on a yes 25 years later. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.